Okay, you got your awake now. <laughs> After that, good. Well, this morning we're going to be doing uh, just one more Sunday of question and answers, and so uh, we're going to try and see how many we can get through. Um, then they're just a whole bunch of of questions. It's not, it's not the normal thing we do, but we just answer a bunch of questions. A couple weeks, two, three weeks in August. We do this because so many people are gone on vacation. We have visitors, people traveling around. That This is a good time to just let you ask the questions, and then I try and answer as many as I can. Now, if, if you're out there and I get to the end, you realize, oh, you didn't answer my question. Then just ask one of the elders or pastors and uh, get your question answered. Another thing you can do is you can go on the website and you can log on to the website, go under sermons, and you'll see question and answer sermons and you'll be able to listen to all of them. And a lot of the questions come up year after year. As a matter of fact, I purposely try not to answer ones I've answered before. So the reason yours may be left out is that you may have already had it answered. Okay, we're just going to jump in. The first question is, what does the binding and loosing refer to in Matthew 16:19 and Matthew 18:18? 18, 18? So turn to Matthew chapter 16 verse 19. Jesus has just responded to Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus has explained to Peter in verse 17 of Matthew 16 that this information was given to him by divine revelation. Then Jesus says in verses 18 and 19, these words, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Turn over to Matthew eighteen eighteen, which is just probably a page or two over. This is the classic text on church discipline. Jesus is speaking uh, about those who uh, are have decided to discipline somebody publicly because they have not repented after private and multiple confrontations. And he says this in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, the New American Standard 95 Update Edition does the best job translating this particular section of Scripture. Virtually all other translations, uh, you know, like the New King James, the English Standard Version, the New International Version, all the popular, uh, more literal versions, read something like this. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this is the common way this has been translated. The problem is, is that it doesn't really represent what's here. It sounds like when you translate it that way, that heaven is following Peter or the church. In other words, the, you know, Peter confesses Christ in the future and then heaven follows Peter and binds whatever he does. Or the church decides to do church discipline and then heaven goes, oh yeah, it's a good idea, let's do it. Um, it sounds like heaven is following what men on earth are doing. Both texts use what is called the future tense will when it says will be so they, both texts are speaking about acts done in the future but they also use what is called a pers- perfect passive participle i know that some of you are probably thinking oh no I forgot all of that in eighth grade, or I never even learned it in eighth grade. Uh, but let me just explain to you, whenever you have, um, uh, you know, there's different what they call moods and tenses, uh, verb tenses. And, um, you know, there's like active and passive. Active is when the subject is the doer of the action. The boy hits the ball. The boy is actively hitting the ball. That'd be active tense. Uh, uh, there is uh, a passive tense. The boy is hit by the ball. It is some, somebody does something to you um, that is passive. Well, a perfect tense describes something that has happened in the past and the results of that action continue 
to the present. Now, let me give you a classic text on this, which probably most of you know if you've been uh, a Christian for a while. And that is Ephesians 2, 8, which says, by, for by grace, you have been saved. And he goes on through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and etc. Now, the, the word words, you have been saved are one word in the Greek. And it is a, guess what? A perfect passive participle. That is, you were saved in the past, and the results of your salvation continue to be here to the present. So, the same exact tense is used in Matthew 16, 19, and 18, 18. Paul is not saying in Ephesians 2, you're going to be saved in the future, but you're already saved in the past, and you're just enjoying the consequences of it now. Well, when you understand that, then you understand why the NASB, the New American Standard Update Edition, 95 Update, decided to translate this in a somewhat awkward way, but a way that matches more literally what the Greek says, when it says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, which is kind of a weird way to say it, but it's an accurate way to say it. In other words, when Peter, in the future, for instance, would confess Jesus as the son of the living God, or the church in the future would perform public discipline on an unrepentant person, they would be following the pattern already prescribed and established in heaven. It's not like they would be doing something and have them to go good idea and follow them. No, when we do church discipline, we are following what heaven has already prescribed. The word binding and loosing are figures of speech. They describe things that are either established, bound, fixed, determined, or things that are set free, loosed, or allowed to go free. You know, when someone continues an unrepentant sin and we have to put them under church discipline, we have followed the instructions of heaven and have obeyed, and that person is no longer willing to fellowship until they repent. When they do repent, then we loose them of the discipline and following the heavenly pattern which has already been established. So that is what those words mean. Question number two. How can there be no sin in heaven if we are going to rule over angels? And why is there a need for rulers if there is no sin? Well, this question reveals a misconception. And that misconception is, is that the only reason we need rulers and authorities and, you know, people in submission to other people is because of sin. That is not the case. You especially need it when there is sin. But after Satan, demons, and all unrepentant sinners are judged and cast into the lake of fire, there will still be order, rule, submission, and authority. Jesus Christ will be on the throne calling the shots and redeemed men and holy angels will be doing his bidding. Some will be rulers, some will be submitters, but all will submit to Christ and will submit to the structure that he has established. Though heaven is a perfect place with a perfect God and a perfect savior without any sin, it is still a place of order, hierarchy, submission, and authority, and will always be that way. And if you want to know what determines your position in heaven, it's what you do on earth. Remember the parable of the talents, the person who was good and and labored to invest their money was given many cities in the kingdom The person who did okay was given a few, and the person who buried theirs didn't get there. Question three. What uh, the Apostles' Creed states that Jesus spent some time in hell. Where is that in the Bible? And I want you to know, I answered a similar question to this on August 17th. 2003. So if you go to the the website and you look up sermons or you call the office, you want the sermon, question, answer, sermon, August 17th, 2003. I go into it in some detail there also. But two texts are commonly cited. One is in Ephesians 4. Turn there. I don't think this text works, but it's commonly used. So we'll just look at this first. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Where Paul says, starting in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended in the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now some believe that the phrase there, descended in the lower parts of the earth, is talking about Christ descending into hell. I don't think that for this reason. The context is about Christ becoming a man and giving gifts to men. He did that, first of all, by giving himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus came to earth. He died on the cross for our sins. He promised the Holy Spirit, gave the Holy Spirit as a gift, who in turn gave spiritual gifts to those who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So in that way, Jesus descended to the lower parts of the earth. That is, he descended from heaven to earth to live and die and give those gifts to us that we now enjoy. The second text is 1 Peter 3:18 and this one here I do believe speaks of Jesus's descent into hell or Hades or the place of the dead. 1 Peter chapter 3 That's 2 Peter. There we go. 1 Peter 3:18 through 20. Peter's theme is suffering. And uh, he refers to Christ, and in verse 18, he says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, just stop there for a moment. Notice that Jesus here is put to death in the flesh, that in he dies physically. But when he dies physically, he is made alive in the spirit. So notice we are talking about what happened to Jesus after physically dying when he was now a spirit after death. And notice what the text continues to say. Verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to spirits now in prison. Now stop there. This word proclamation is important because this word proclamation is a word that is often used in Greek literature of, for instance, a king goes out to battle, conquers another king, and then maybe takes captives and brings them in and parades them through his city and kind of like, you know, look what I did. I conquered this guy. I overcame this kingdom or this king or this army and I am making a victory proclamation. So you might say in which he also went, made a victory proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Spirits here are referring to angels. The fact that they're in prison tells us they are demons. They aren't holy angels because they're rebellious. This brings up another subject, which we are not going to address, and that is the identity of the spirits being referred to here. I believe they are the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6. And if you want to hear more about this, you can also listen to the question and answer sermon August 17th, 2003, where I address that. Regardless of who they are, One thing is certain, they're incarcerated demons, incarcerated spirits. And the point that the context is talking about is that Jesus, after dying physically, he went to speak to spirits in prison to make this victory proclamation. We know from other texts, such as 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6, that God imprisoned especially wicked demons who disobeyed and did what, what these authors call left their proper domain... And Peter tells us that God has incarcerated them in pits of darkness reserved for judgment. 
The, the, the phrase pits of darkness in the Greek is Tartarus. The, you've, if you've read any Greek mythology, you probably know about Tartarus as the place of the dead. Biblically speaking, it is the holding place where especially wicked demons are held captive until the judgment of the great day. And if you've been here a while and you were here when we taught through the Gerizim demoniac, then you know what happened when Jesus approached the Gerizim demoniac, cried out and said, Son of God, have you come here to torment us before our time and then later on they implored him not to command them to go into the abyss or tartarus the place of incarceration instead he sent them into the pigs and they made devil ham now without with that we're just going to leave that there you can get more information on all of that in uh, august 17 2003 sermon Moving on. Question four. Israel currently occupies only a fraction of the land God has promised them in Genesis fifteen eighteen and Joshua 1, 4. Israel says they are pushing the Hezbollah back to the Latani River, an area that was conquered by Joshua about 1406 B.C. Question. What significance, if any, does this have and what priority should knowing the end times events in the Bible have in our daily times with the Lord? First of all, you have to be very careful not to interpret prophecy by the morning newspaper. I know it's tempting. I want you to know it's tempting for me too. Every time I real, you know, realize about some sort of computer chip being inserted in someone's hand, I kind of, ooh, ooh. Yesterday I was buying some electrical parts and, and uh, this guy said, yeah, pretty soon they're going to be doing implants in us. And I said, they aren't to me. And he said, no, no, really, they have the technology. And I know they have the technology, but they're not putting one in me. <laughs> Anyways, when you look at that, you can, you can see how you can just immediately run over to this portion of Revelation and go, oh, cool. Um, right there, that no man might buy or sell, say he have the mark on the beast, you know, the mark of the beast, which is in his hand or his forehead. And mm, you get all excited. And I know there's a temptation to do that. And that's fine to do that. But the fact is, is Israel may not possess all of the land promised to Abraham, uh, Moses, and Joshua until the millennial kingdom. Or it could be they could possess all of it and lose it ten times before Jesus comes back. The important thing is that eventually they will possess it. They will possess it because it is promised to them as an everlasting possession and part of what is called the unilateral covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, for the part of what, how does this relate to our normal lives? How does prophecy um, relate to Christians today? You need to come to the Daniel class. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, somebody came up to me and said, well, what if I come in in the middle? Great. You know, it's not like you won't be able to follow along. Um, Daniel is very uh, segmented. And even we're just finishing up the first six chapters, which are the narrative section. And we're just going to be getting into the section on prophecies in chapter seven and following. And I'm going to try and stretch that out until the building comes down. So we're going slow and we try and get a lot of application in there. So uh, if you want to know how prophecy applies, come to that class. Question five, someone refers to bearing fruit in season. Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. To what does season refer to? Well, as you know, if you weren't here, uh, Tim Carnes just preached on this. Um, but to answer the question, a season is a specific time. Fruit trees bear fruit. Usually at a certain season. There's a certain time where you can go out and look for fruit on different kinds of trees. In Deuteronomy 11.14, God promises rain in its season. Job 5.25 speaks of stacking grain in its season. Job 8.38.32 speaks of God, God's uh, moving the constellation across the night sky in their seasons. Hosea 2.9 speaks of making new wine in its season. So a season is just a normal time for something to happen. A normal expected time. In Psalm 1, it is used as a figure of speech to describe one who trusts in, delights in, and walks in the counsel of the Lord. 
Healthy plants, for instance, produce fruit in their season. Christians who delight in, meditate on, and walk in the counsel of the Lord produce fruit. That's what it's saying. Every season is the season to produce fruit for those who trust and delight in and walk in the counsel of the Lord. That is why verse 3 of Psalm 1 says, and whatever he does, he prospers. In 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season. And of course, um, now that's 2 Timothy. I need to fix that right there. That's my favorite verse. And so let's just camp here for a second. Um, 2 Timothy 4.2, when he talks about there's this big giant five-fold command, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead at his kingdom is appearing, preach the word. And he says, be ready in season and out of season. He says, I want you to be reproving and rebuking and re- exhorting with great patience and instruction. Why? Because the time's going to come and they're not going to endure sound doctrine. They're going to want to have their ears tickled. They're going to seek out teachers in accordance with their own lusts, their own epithemias. And today in our world, we are in a out of season time for preaching. As a matter of fact, most people have no idea what preaching is. They have no idea. They don't realize that preaching is to be reproving, rebuking, exhorting, admonishing, correcting, teaching with all authority. And so a lot of churches, because their goal is not to preach, but it's to entertain people or make them feel good. When people come in, they leave going, well, that was kind of, you know, fun, humorous, you know, all this great. And then they come to a church that confronts them when he says, these things teach with all authority, Paul tells Titus, and let no one disregard you. That word disregard you means step around you. It means preach in such a way that every single person feels cornered and spoken to directly so they can't get away. Now, have you ever felt that way when I preach? Oh, praise God. That's what I'm trying to do. So be, oh, I, I feel convicted when you preach. Oh, bingo. Good. Thank you for that compliment. That's what preaching's about. And so what Paul is talking about here is you need to be willing to preach in season and out of season. Now, if you've gone to this church for a long time and you're kind of used to confrontive preaching, you, know, you may think this is what's going on in all churches. Well, it's not. It's going on in very, very, very few churches. Uh, You know, almost every week, you know, somebody comments, like, you preach an hour? (laughs) Yeah, and I have to stop because the sound people up there go. (laughs) And um, they make me stop. But yeah, you know, most churches get 10 minutes, 15 minutes. They don't explain the text. They don't explain the context. They don't interpret it. They don't help you imply it. They just have a thought. Have a thought. That's not preaching. That's talking. And so we live in a day when preaching is out of season. Most churches, if you were to send a good biblical preacher in there, they would only barely endure them one sermon. And they'd make sure that person did not come back. And so what Paul is saying is you need to preach the word in season and out of season. That is preach when everybody wants it and expects it and preach when they don't want it and they don't expect it. That is why it is so fun to preach when somebody asks me and I think they have no idea what they're getting. (laughs) I preached to a whole bunch of church leaders one time. And as I preached, their eyes were like, They weren't ready for it. I begged them for 30 minutes. And I preached on a text that had six commands. And man, I just, it was like six blows with the hammer. And uh, everybody kind of got up and they all left and they ran away from me. And one guy said, well, don't you think that was a little um, forceful? 
I said, I hope so. It's the word of God. So, yeah, you know, I felt like, you know, you were just like exhorting us. I said, well, there are six commands and three verses. So I, so I did. I was trying to. I was preaching. I was like, ooh, believe me, they won't ask me back. <laughs> I had my one time. All right, question six. We've heard different things about salvation. Some say that once we believe in Jesus and confess with our mouth, he is Lord, that we will be saved. Others say that unless we show all the fruit of the spirit and serve faithfully in a local church, we will go to hell. Which view is correct? This sounds like somebody's conscience is bothering them from the the sermons on serving. (laughs) So good. Um, I just want you to know, I answered this question also July 22nd, 2001. You can list it on the web if you want. But it's worth answering again since it's important. And a lot of people get confused because a lot of times when I'm up here preaching, I'm talking about obeying, obeying, obeying. And if you don't want to obey the Lord, and if you don't love the Lord, and if you aren't following the Lord, don't think you're saved. And they think, are you trying to tell me I'm saved by works? No. So this has a couple parts. The first part is some say that once we believe in Jesus and confess with our mouth that he is Lord, we will be saved. Well, some don't say that. God says that in part. That is a fraction of a verse, a fraction of a sentence. It's actually three, a sentence three verses long, and you can find it in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Turn there. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. Paul is speaking of his desire to see the Jews saved. And he says this, starting in verse 8. But what does it say? It being the word of God. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Notice the sentence doesn't stop there. And believe in your heart. That God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, it would be so great to preach the whole rest of the time on this, but I'm not going to. But we'll just point out a few things. First, there is a gospel message that must be heard. So somebody needs to preach. He goes on to talk about that later. How can they hear without a preacher? And how can he preach unless they're sent? There is a gospel message that must be proclaimed. Second, there is a confession. That is, you proclaim Jesus as a resurrected Lord in response to hearing this gospel. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Third, you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead after being crucified for your sins. Not just with your mind, but with your heart. You actually believe it so as to act upon it. Salvation, we all know, is by grace through faith. We already quoted Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one should boast. I mean, if that isn't clear, I don't know what is. By grace, faith, not of yourselves, gift, not a result of works. I mean, that's pretty clear. You can look at, you know, Titus 3, 5. You can look at 2 Timothy 1, 9. You can look at... Romans 3.23 and 6.23. And there's lots of verses being justified as a gift by his grace. Um, There's tons of verses that talk about being saved by grace through faith alone. No one is saved by works to any amount or any degree ever or ever will be only by the person and work of Christ. Question 6, part B. Others say that unless... We show all the fruit of the Spirit and serve faithfully in the local church. We will go to hell. Again, the issue is not what others say, but what does God say? Now, write this down. If you want to know more about this question, listen to the sermon on Luke 6, 46 through 49, entitled, The Foundation of Your Life. It is the text where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. And I went after this very question in great detail in that sermon. Luke 6, 46 through 49, the foundation of your life. You can get it from the office. You can download it from the website. So, 
Having said that, secondly, Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. These, the question says, um, others say, unless we show all the fruit of the Spirit and serve faithfully, just so you know, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It is a singular fruit. Which is composed of, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So when you're talking about the fruit, you're talking about all the pieces. It's like soup. You know, you have to put in all the ingredients and then you have the soup. Um, you take out a ingredient and it's not a certain kind of soup. Well, in the same way, it's called a composite singular. That is like an orange, which has many segments, but all of them together make the orange. The fruit of the spirit has all these aspects. In other words, you can't have love, joy, peace, hatred, gentleness, kindness, self-control. See, that doesn't work. You don't have the singular fruit. You either get them all or you don't. You don't just get to have part. So, having said that, just to make it clear, that you need to display the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit of God is in every believer, Romans 8. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. If you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce that fruit in your life. And it also must be clear that I don't know anyone who teaches that Christians don't have to display the fruit of the Spirit. I've never read that. Secondly, I also don't know of anyone who says Christians perfectly have to always be displaying the Spirit. I've never read that either. We've already agreed that salvation is by grace, God's undeserved favor, through faith, believing in the person and work of Christ. The question is, the issue is, what does saving faith look like? Or what does it produce in the life of a believer? That is the issue. What is the external evidence that true saving faith is present? Again... If you want to study this, and I would strongly encourage you, I would strongly encourage anyone to study this, even if they don't want to um, study this. I would go onto the website. I would go to the basic, under classes, basic Bible doctrine. I would print off the three lessons, lesson on man and sin, the lesson on salvation, and the lesson on the relationship between faith and works. And I would work through those, answer the questions, and listen to the 14 audio messages that go with those three lessons and they will thoroughly answer this question. But you got to, you think, why'd I have to do the man sin? The man in sin is the most important lesson because that's what you're saved from. You have to understand sin and how it has affected you. So do that. But having established that salvation is not of works, but by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his person, his work, turn to James chapter two, James chapter two. And let's just look at the nature of saving faith or what saving faith looks like in the life of a believer. James chapter 2 verses 14 and following. Again, no one continually displays or walks in the spirit because Christians are sinners. You know, not all people are serving in the church. Who are truly saved. But those who are truly saved and not serving are sinning. If they're doing it as a regular habit. The person whose life is not transformed by the faith they have in Jesus Christ. Evidences by their lack of transformed life that they aren't born again. They aren't a new creature. They haven't been regenerated. Let's look at James 2.14. What use is it, my brethren... If someone says he has faith but has no works, just stop there. In the Greek, they have certain rhetorical questions with implied answers. The implied answer is, and this, two implied answers. What use is it? Implied answer, it is no use. And then if someone says he has faith but has no works, what use is that? It's, 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 it's not. It's nothing. It does nothing. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Remember, James is not telling us how to be saved. That is not his emphasis here. His emphasis is what does saving faith look like? You want to find out how to be saved, you know, go to Romans chapter 3 and 4, where Paul tells us how to get saved and justified before God. Here, James is telling us what saving faith does after a person is saved. 
Look at the end of verse 14. Can that faith save him? And polite answer, no, no. He is saying, listen, you have this, this faith. It has no works. What use is it? It is of no work, no use. Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? The implied answer is, it's of no use. What good is it to have some faith that's dead and doesn't do anything? The conclusion, look at verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. In other words, if you think you have saving faith, but it isn't producing obedience to God, it's not saving faith. James anticipates that there will be people in the church, though, who call themselves Christians, but don't want to obey the Lord, don't want to read their Bible, don't want to walk in the Spirit, don't want to serve, don't want to give. And these people want to think, well, I'm saved, and he's answering that question. Look at verse 18. But someone may well say, well, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is saying, listen... I don't know how else you can demonstrate your faith if it's not by works. It surely isn't by mere profession. Look at verse 19. Here's another argument. You believe that God is one? You know, there's always those people who say, I believe in God. I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. You believe God is one or God exists? You do well. Guess what? The demons also believe and they shudder. Think about that. There are no atheist demons. <laughs> Not only do they believe God exists, but they know that Jesus is Lord. They know he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death on the cross, was buried and resurrected on the third day, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. They know all of that. They know it's true. But he says they shudder. The Greek literally means their hair stands on end. They're terrified of Christ. Point being, intellectual faith is necessary, but not sufficient to save by itself. Saving faith desires to obey the Lord, something the demons do not want to do. Look at verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? Why are they foolish fellows? Because they think that mere profession is enough. That faith without works is useless. You notice how many times he's saying this. I mean, it's hard to get away from this one. I don't, I don't see how he could say it any clearer. Faith without works is useless. Useless for what? For anything. <laughs> Especially salvation. It brings no glory to God to say you believe in something. To say, oh, I'm a follower of Christ. I live for Satan, but I follow Christ. See, that doesn't work. That, that doesn't work. That's not saving faith. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now some, when you read that, go, what? Abraham our father was by works? Justified by works? Immediately your mind goes to Romans 4 where Paul says, Was not Abraham our father justified by faith apart from works? And you're going, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. Paul is talking about how to be saved. James is talking about what saving faith looks like. So there is a difference. The context is different. What's going on? Well, they have a whole different context. And James explains, look at verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, Abraham's works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he is called the friend of God. Notice that James quotes the same text Paul does, and he agrees that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's not against justification by faith. What he's trying to emphasize is that Abraham, when God said, go sacrifice your son, didn't say, yeah, yeah, I should probably do that someday. 
He got up the next morning. He got his son. He got his servants. He got the wood. They went on a big hike. He took his son. He took him up to the mountain. He bound him up. He laid him on the wood. He took out the knife. He was going to stab him through. He acted. That is saving faith. That is saving faith. It is a faith which believes so as to trust and obey. Now, look at verse 24. James concludes, you see that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Or it could be reworded this way. You see that man is justified by the kind of faith that lives for God. Look at verse 25. In the same way, because he's thinking, you know, I better give him one more example here. Because people are probably freaking out now. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? This is the second example. Rahab didn't just say, you know what? The God of the Israelites is the true God. And then turn the spies in. No. She said, the God of the Israelites is the true God. I believe it. I'm going to act upon it. I'm going to help these spies. I'm going to hide them. I'm going to let them out so they don't get caught. I'm going to put a cord on my window so that when the army comes, they don't destroy me and my family will be spared. She acted upon the faith that she had. She believed and she acted. James is saying, that's saving faith. Look at verse 26, final conclusion with an illustration. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, you know, you go to the morgue and roll out, you know, the steel table, zip open the sack, and voila, they're dead. They're not moving, they're not doing anything, they are dead. They can't do anything. That body is good for nothing. So also faith without works is dead. That is, any faith which is merely intellectual is dead. And it can't do anything, save you or bring glory to God or anything else. So in summary, Paul in Romans teaches us how to be saved and justified by grace through faith alone. James, on the other hand, teaches us what saving faith looks like in the life of a believer. And what non-saving faith looks like in the life of an unbeliever. Question number 6.C, which of you is correct as explained? Salvation is by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's true. And saving faith is a living faith and is authenticated by good works. True. Question number 7. Is there anything unbiblical about a believer being cremated after they die? We're kind of in the death section here. No. And you can be buried. You can be burned. You can be thrown to the sharks at sea. You can be mummified, you can be launched into space, doesn't matter. I'm actually planning on teaching a class on this very subject after finishing with the book of Daniel. And uh, I've been talking to Edward about it, I'm gonna, we're maybe going to call it Get Ready to Die. Um, <laughs> it sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? But I actually thought, you know, it'd be good to talk about this. Look up the scriptures, look up the realities, talk, get people ready to die. I don't care what age you are, you can plan your funeral. You know, it's such a bummer when somebody dies and their family goes, I don't know what their favorite verse is. I don't know what songs they want to see. You can tell them. We'll keep it on file here. You die, we'll just pull it out and make it happen. It'll save us a lot of time. You'll get exactly what you wanted. Our culture works very hard to try and make death beautiful, wonderful. But all of this is, has a motivation behind it, which most people, when they're grieving, don't get. And it's greed and money. You know, you can't just take Uncle Joe's dead body and throw it in a hole in the ground. You have to have a specific place you bury it, a specific hole that is an expensive hole. <laughs> and you can't just throw them in the ground either. You can say, yeah, dig the hole, pitch them in, put dirt on top. No, 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 no. A concrete vault with the rubber seal. Figure that one out. Why, so Joe doesn't get anything on him? <laughs> but you got to put him in a coffin first with another airtight seal. With soft silk pillows. Do you think Joe cares? <laughs> that there's silk pillows in his coffin? 
Well, Joe is even there. When a person dies, they suck all the bodily fluids out of them, pump them full of pink preservatives, probably the same thing they put in Twinkies, that make them last forever. I don't know if that's what they use or not, but probably. I'm not eating any Twinkies. But you know what? What's left behind, that's not them. That's not them. That's their body. They are gone. But you know what? I'm telling you. People spend a lot of money trying to doctor up that corpse. They shave people, makeup, hair. You know, they put them in this really nice black walnut coffin with bright brass hinges and hardware put them in that soft silky pillows and have the airtight triple lock seal on it and bury it in the ground to the tune of thousands and thousands of dollars but listen it's a body it's a corp it's dust it's dirt it's chemicals that body is not the person just think of two five gallon buckets of dirt in there and you're thinking, should we go to all this expense for the dirt? No. But you know what? Our culture has worked so hard to make money off of this that we actually have laws. I mean, you just can't drive around with a body in your car. You can't just put somebody in the backyard. You have to have this expensive place to put them. The expensive process. You have to go through the appropriate channels. As if... You know, your relative cares. I mean, come on now. And I'm not trying to be cold or irreverent here, but you need to know the truth. When a person dies, they leave their body, and it's a waste of time spending a whole bunch of money and time trying to doctor up what remains. It's like you when you drove here this morning in your car. You get out of your car. Well, you're not in the car anymore. You're in here. Well, when you die, you're not in the body anymore. You're not there. You're elsewhere. You're either in heaven or you're in hell. And believe me, you don't care how they dressed you. You don't care how soft the pillows are in the casket, how deep it is, how expensive it was. You don't care. But a lot of times people, when they're in grief and they're under this pressure and they're thinking, you know, I want to honor so-and-so and, you know, this is a loved one and I want to make sure it's nice for them. It's not nice for them. They're not there. They're not there. And so to work to try and make it nice for them is really too late. You can be nice to people when they're alive, when they're dead, they're with the Lord or they're not with the Lord, but you can't be nice to them anymore. You can honor their memory That's fine. But to spend tons of money trying to take care of some dirt is just not good. When I die, I mean, I don't care if you wrap my body in four mil black plastic and just throw it in a hole. I I don't care. You can burn me up and spread my ashes in Silver Creek, Idaho. You know what? It's it's not going to make any difference to me. It won't hurt. And I won't care. And it'd be helpful for everyone in America to be at a funeral service in a country where death is not commercialized. I wish I could just take you all to a place and just see it. The reality. Cold, stark reality. Missionary was telling me recently that he went to a funeral and this person had died and three days later was the service and it was hot and it was summer and they put this person in a crude plywood box on some sawhorses and there was fluids dripping down and it reeked. You think, oh, sick. Bingo. That's real. That is real. That is death. Decay. Dead body. Returning to the dust of the earth. And so my advice to you is leave detailed instructions while you are alive about what you want done with your body after you die. I would encourage you to spend the least amount of money as possible and give the rest to the Lord's work. Instead of spending thousands of dollars on a custom-made coffin with 100% silk pillows that you'll never feel and an airtight seal that you won't care about, give it to the Lord's work. 
And believe me, the second after you die, you'll be glad you did. Question number eight. Some Christians have had life after death experiences, even non-believers. Is life after death experience in the Bible also? Do you believe in life after death experiences? Well, first, every Christian and non-Christian has a life after death experience. Because when you die, you keep living. All our souls are immortal. Now, in the world, they look at death as the final thing because Satan, the God of this world, wants you to think that this world is all there is to live for. He wants you to try and get all the happiness you can, all the comfort you can. He wants you to keep focused on this world, to get anxious when you're about ready to die, to be stressed out because you know you're, you're losing your grip on your stuff. Everybody loses their grip on their stuff. Everybody loses it. It all is left behind. You know, I think it was Swindoll who said, you don't see hearses pulling U-Haul trailers. It doesn't happen. You can't take it with you. I mean, the pharaohs tried and then people dug it up and stole it. Now it's in the British Museum. (laughs) You, You can't take it with you. So... Everybody dies and they have a life after death experience. They wake up in heaven or hell. So that's life after death. Now, if by this you mean, do people who have died then come back to life? That's another issue in this life. And this is part A of the question. That when you are dead, you can have... Clinical deadness and yet not go to heaven or hell. What determines death is God. Not a pronunciation. You know, your heart stops beating. You know, I, my heart stops beating every once in a while. I'll be sitting there and all of a sudden it just... And then it starts beating again. It's interesting. Uh, the doctors tell me it's okay. So if I remember up here and I fall over, you'll know what happened. Um, yeah, you know, so just because you're clinically dead and then you're resuscitated and then you wake up and you, you've thought you've had this experience where you went to heaven or hell and you're convinced of it. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches people do come back from the dead and it's called a miraculous resurrection. There's two different categories. People who are resurrected to die again, which is everybody except Jesus And then people who are resurrected, given glorified bodies, never to die again, like Jesus who was resurrected. And like all of us will eventually be, when the resurrection takes place, we will all receive resurrected bodies. The believers to eternal life, the believers to eternal death are suffering in hell. Certain texts such as John 5, verses 28 and 29, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, Revelation 20, 11 through 13, teach that believers and unbelievers are resurrected. So in that way, there's life after death even for your body. If you're talking about the resurrection. But people even in the Old Testament and New Testament who are resurrected, you know, by Elijah or Jesus or the apostles died again. The second part is, is life after death experience in the Bible? And we just talked about it. Another category, though, which is kind of interesting, is times when dead people came back to speak to people who were alive. And there's a couple instances, such as in 1 Samuel chapter 28, in the story of the witch of Endor, where Saul goes to the witch to try and find out what happens, and God resurrects Samuel the prophet who has died up, and you know he gets the prophecy pronounced to him. Another instance um, would be in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appear to the apostles, and they get to see them in their kingdom glory. I wonder always how they knew it was Moses and Elijah if they had name tags or whatever, but they knew it was them. And uh, so, yeah, uh, people, and it just shows that when people die, physically speaking, they're still alive. They're still spirits. Um, and one day in the resurrection, God will take their spirits and unite them um, with a glorified body. And then they will live in that perfect, immortal state forever in heaven or hell. Um, 
But if you want to know if people die, go to heaven or hell, and then come back to tell about their experiences, I don't believe they do. And the, and the reason is, is Job 7, verses 7 through 10, Job speaks to God and says, Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol, the place of the dead, does not come up. He will not return to his house again, nor will his place know him anymore. So that's in the Bible. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as much as pointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So for the third part, do I believe in life after death? Yes, if you're talking about living in heaven and hell or miraculous exceptional cases of resurrection. Um, but if, if I believe that people have been snatched from heaven and hell by being resuscitated on the, the table, no, no. I do believe, though, that people have extremely powerful experiences. They think they've gone to heaven, think they've gone to hell, are totally convinced about it, and some of them have totally changed their life around because they think they've been there. But God's word says no, so that's what I believe. Question number nine. What is the difference between the conscience and the Holy Spirit? Well, I would direct you to two sermons. You can write these down if you want to know about the conscience and Holy Spirit. Uh, first, in the First Timothy series, How to Spot False Teachers, First Timothy 1, 5 through 7, and The Shipwreck of Faith, First Timothy 1, 19 and 20, um, all, uh, both of those sermons, I deal with the, the conscience in quite a bit of detail. Um, but in short, the conscience is nothing more than a spiritual alarm that God has put in you to tell you that something wrong's happened. I, I describe it as a smoke detector. You know, like when you burn the toast, there's smoke in the house and it goes off. Okay, that's what the conscience is. The Holy Spirit is God. So they're totally different things. God, of course, convicts the world of sin and judgment and dwells believers, and the Holy Spirit may use the word of God to inform the conscience and make the conscience go off, but the conscience is the, the alarm and the Holy Spirit is the person. So they're, they're quite a bit different. And finally, a good question, question number 10. If I was baptized as an infant or an unbeliever later in life, but have since come to Christ and been saved, do I need to be baptized again? What if someone was baptized as a believer by sprinkling? Would they be baptized again, need to be baptized again by immersion. Well, this is pretty easy to answer. Two-step process. First, what is the purpose of baptism? You got to answer that. Why be baptized? And the answer is simply this. You are baptized because you want to stand up as a believer and make a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to tell publicly I am a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And to be united with Christ symbolically in his death, burial, and resurrection. Because that's what baptism symbolizes. Death, burial under the water, and resurrection to newness of life. So, once you understand the purpose of baptism, the second step is, have you done that? There you go. It's easy, isn't it? If you were a baby and somebody dunked you, you weren't a believer and you weren't professing Jesus as your savior and you didn't want to be united with him in symbolically in death, burial and resurrection. So you need to be baptized. If you were baptized as a believer, but you were sprinkled, then what about that? Well, then I would leave that up to you in your conscience. Some sprinkle, some dip, some dunk, some triple dip. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The brethren do that. And you know what? The mode of baptism is not nearly as important as the fact that you as a Christian are willing to stand up and declare that you are a follower of Jesus. Because the scripture commands you to do that. And if you haven't done that, you need to do that. Next time we have a baptism class, go. And even if you're unsure, go to the class and learn more about it. Work through the study. Ask questions. Some feel, though, you must be baptized by immersion, and their reasoning 
is understandable because sprinkling represents maybe cleansing, but it doesn't represent death, burial, and resurrection. So it doesn't work very well. And while I believe the biblical mode is immersion, the most important part is that you make a public profession of faith. Now, whenever I have somebody who's into a certain mode, I always like to ask them if they use wine during communion, real wine. Because that's the other ordinance we practice. And a lot of people go, well, no, you use juice. The Bible says wine. You better fix it. And then I walk away. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we were able to just look at some great questions. And Father, I just thank you so much that you are so kind to us. That you deal with us and our frailties. That when we are faithless, you are faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Father, I pray that the many questions that we answered would be fruitful to our minds and to our lives. That we would be better equipped to have an account for the hope that is within us. Father, that we would know more and live more because of it. Father, if there's anybody here who has never repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved by grace so that they might walk in newness of life, may they do that now. May they cry out to you, admit they are a sinner, and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be transformed forever, forevermore. Father, we thank you for all you give us. May you be honored and glorified, and may we be the instruments through which you get that for yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.